what is Jesus doing in Matthew 23? It's not really a happy, joyful, kind of, everything's going to be okay kind of passage, is it? It's, he is deliberately and intentionally picking a fight with the Pharisees. Why, is he, why does he even bother? He is in actually instructing his disciples about what we should be by pointing out what we shouldn't be. Sometimes we need to work out what we want to be by working out what we, we don't want to be. And so the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage is that Christianity is not about putting on an act. It's not even about trying hard. Following Jesus is about who you actually are. One of the, the truths of following Jesus is you, you just can't fake it. Ultimately, who you are shows up. What matters isn't what's on the outside. It's what you, what's actually going on on the inside. What you actually believe to be true is what produces your values, what you think is important. And it is your values that produce your actions. And it's the actions that produce the results that we talk about uh, when we're gossiping about people. And it's your actions that also produce the, the health or unhealth of your family. And so what this means is that following Jesus is a continual journey to examine your beliefs because we're all on a journey. And there is a, a moment, it's the most precious moment of your life, where you step over a line and you say, yep, Jesus, I want you to be Lord. And then what happens is that the, the, the adventure isn't over. The adventure is just starting. What he's doing at that point is taking your hand and saying, okay, now let's talk about some of your beliefs. And I don't, can you acknowledge that there are things that you believe to be true, maybe not intellectually, but you still keep coming back to, that hold you back. There are wrong beliefs you have, you operate out of, and they're just the ones you know about. Because the reality is there are wrong beliefs you have that you don't know about, and you don't, you don't know the difference between the wrong beliefs you have you don't know about and the, and, and the right beliefs. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is a bit like a plumb line. He's the one that helps us work out where our beliefs actually fit. The most important thing about you is what you actually believe. And sometimes your wrong beliefs just come from the fact that you've, you're a bit naive and haven't had to face stuff. Sometimes your wrong beliefs come from a pain, the painful chapters of your life. I still remember I had, I, the, the Time, the end of my time in Fusion was quite complex. Uh, and I still remember being in Canada in a, in a healthy team uh, that was quite different. And I, I remember this, there was, there was a, a moment where there's a bunch of people talking in a, in a corner. And I, I just assumed they were gossiping about me. They weren't at all. But my wrong beliefs because of my painful history had meant I was seeing things wrong. It's so important to understand that the becoming a Christian isn't the moment where everything's finished. It's the, it's the moment where the adventure starts. 
And what Jesus is toughest on about the Pharisees is they're all about the show, but they're not doing the work to work out what's going on inside. Let's look at uh, Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside will also be clean. Jesus knows how it works. Get the inside stuff worked out, and you won't have to put on an act, he's saying. And it's a journey, isn't it? I don't know, can you start to identify some of the wrong beliefs you have? And again, just a writer, there are plenty of wrong beliefs you have that you aren't even aware of, but there are, I know there are some that you know you keep coming back to that keep tripping you up. And you know they're wrong, but you still keep coming back to them, don't you? It's actually really important to be aware of this. You see what Jesus is saying? Get the inside of the cup sorted out and the outside takes care of itself. He also gives us, while he's given us a bit of a guide for what godliness looks like in justice, mercy and faithfulness, he's also given us a bit of an example of what the opposite of that is. And what is the opposite? Look, it's interesting. The opposite of justice isn't injustice. The opposite of justice is self-interest and greed. The opposite of justice is self-interest and greed. The opposite of, it's also the opposite of mercy and it's the opposite of faithfulness. And we live in a culture that says greed is good and look after the number one person in your life, you. We live in a culture that celebrates self-interest which necessarily means we live in a culture that encourages everybody not to grow up. Growing up is discovering that the world doesn't revolve around you. That's what growing up means. It is becoming a person of justice and mercy and faithfulness and letting go of your self-interest and letting go of your greed. This is going to be a, an interesting question because, as I said, there are wrong beliefs you have that you're not even aware of. But I know that there are wrong beliefs you have that you are. And what I want to ask you this question, what are some of the wrong beliefs you have that you know hold you back? What are the wrong beliefs for you that get in the road? It's really encouraging to see the uh, responses coming in, still coming in. But you need to know uh, that... The Bible teaches that Satan's greatest battle is the battle for truth. And for you personally, it's the lies that shape your life that are the lies that hold you back from the, the, the life that Jesus has for you. And when he died for your sins, he, he died so that you could get to heaven, absolutely. But he also died so that you could experience life here on earth. And he wants to free you from these lies now as much as when you get to heaven. And this is the, the real journey. This is why he was so frustrated with the Pharisees. Because they weren't even addressing the important stuff. They're all about the show. 
They're all about putting it on. Jesus here, you can see, this is towards the end of his life. He knows he doesn't have a, a long time this side of the cross. So it's clear he's not pulling any punches. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. What he's saying is he's giving a picture that they'll all be very familiar with. Once a year, Jewish people would paint their, the tombs white. They'd whitewash them as they, in the lead up to Passover, and they looked beautiful. The reason they did that is that, so particularly in the lead up to Passover, but generally speaking, people would be clear on what was a tomb and what wasn't. So if a traveller was coming through, that they wouldn't become unclean before Passover. And Jesus is using that metaphor and saying, you are so beautiful on the outside. But this stuff, the, the, the kinds of beliefs that hold you back, remain unaddressed. There is death on the inside, he's saying. You, you look like you're righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And as part of that, we, we need to understand that this is where we need to ask for God's forgiveness because often we, we want to judge people for what's on the outside. We can't judge what's on the inside. We've got no idea. God's pretty clear. Jesus is pretty clear. It's never about what's on the outside. It's always about what's on the inside that counts. And throughout the history of the world, God sent people to point out the darkness. Still does. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we'd lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So, you testify against yourselves that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. He's saying to them that uh, you're putting on a big show of honouring the people from the past, but you're not listening to what they said. You're not listening to the, the awkward truth they wanted to communicate, and as part of that, you're perpetuating what your ancestors did. It's interesting, in America now, there's a, a national holiday for Martin Luther King Day. But you know, uh, throughout his life, the CIA, the CIA saw him as one of the number one enemies that they were tracking. And many, many, many white Christians saw Martin Luther King as the problem. Because he would often say things that were awkward, he would often point out things that were dangerous. It's a lot easy, a lot, it's a much easier to venerate people from a safe distance, particularly prophets, people who want to call us out. Our small group this past week sat down and listened to one of Martin Luther King's friends. It's a, a video, it's available on Right Now Media, I really recommend it. Uh, his name is John Perkins. 
He was uh, a, a, an African, he's an, he's an African-American man who uh, came to faith at the age of 27 when his son came home from a, a Sunday school uh, outreach kind of thing in California singing the song, uh, Jesus Loves All the Children of the World. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in God's sight. He said, that was a God I can believe in. I'd, in Alabama, I had never heard that song. Just that simple song changed his life. And he would go on and found a, a youth ministry. He, he felt called to go back to the southern states of America. And he, he has been through the mill. He's 90-something he's now. He's had all kinds of people uh, persecute him, give him a, a hard time. And uh, it was this fascinating conference they held in memory of Martin Luther King, the 50th anniversary. Uh, and they were here to, to venerate some, a prophet of the past. And he said, there is hope in our gospel. But we've put a hole in our gospel. Because we think we can love God without loving our brothers and sisters. And he went on for about half an hour to lay, to sheet home some very awkward truths. It's a lot easier to venerate people from the past than to listen to the prophets of the present. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were keeping the gospel safe at an arm's length. They were keeping God's word safe at an arm's length, but not letting it challenge them. It's not Jesus, you know, it's fairly clear. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Well, how will they? He actually answers the question. I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. He must have said the next bit with a bit of a heavy heart, I imagine. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Jesus knows he is the ultimate prophet. <laughs> he knows what's ahead of him. But he also promises us that he's still going to be sending us people that want to point out awkward truths to us. He's still going to be sending us prophets, people who speak God's word for the moment. And there are all kinds of places where I think we need to hear God's word, where we have become too enmeshed with our culture and needing to face the ways in which the gospel calls us out of, the, of our culture. We need prophets today. We need sages. A prophet speaks God, God's word for the moment 
in the in biblical idiom, a sage is someone who, who comes and brings God's wisdom based on Scripture, but sort of brings God's wisdom and helps us navigate things. And teachers, teachers do a different function in biblical idiom. Teachers give us the framework so that we can see truth for ourselves. We can navigate truth for ourselves. Jesus says, I'm going to send you prophets and sages and teachers. You are going to hear. But let's be honest, you're not going to want to hear. And, and I, I think, of course, the challenge for all of us is it's much easier to come on a Sunday morning and, and have a nice religious experience than to allow ourselves to sit under God's truth and allow it to confront our wrong beliefs. Jesus doesn't want to leave you alone with your wrong beliefs. He wants to call you out of the stuff that holds you back and into the stuff that brings life. And so Jesus says, this is a big deal. Avoiding my truth is a big deal. And upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. This is one of those moments where not reading a Hebrew Bible makes it, we, we miss some of the meaning. Uh, because Abel, in our Bible and in every Bible, was the first righteous person killed in the Bible. But, uh, in the, the order of the Hebrew Bible, most scholars agree that the, the Zechariah, there's a few Zechariahs in the Bible, that the Zechariah this is referring to is in the book of Chronicles, which comes at the end of the writings, which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and he is the last person, the last righteous person killed. And of course, Jesus is saying that knowing that the whole of redemptive history is now coming to a head in and through him. And so all these righteous people have been killed and this generation is about to kill the ultimate righteous person. And Jesus is saying to them, I think sadly, which is... Again, we've got to understand the word woe is a, is, a, is a mournful word, not just a happy word. It's not just a punishing word. It's a, it's a mournful word. He's saying, all this is on your heads. It matters. It may be more comfortable to live in your delusion, but avoiding truth matters is what he's saying and then we get this beautiful picture and remember Jesus he's here he's addressing a crowd and he's the sense is he's looking over Jerusalem and in the crowd are the Pharisees who are probably by this point a little bit upset I imagine and the disciples who whose heads are spinning and a whole bunch of onlookers. 
And we get this beautiful passage where, where you see Jesus' heart come out. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus ends this chapter and prepares to to launch into uh, a very um, challenging condemnation of Jerusalem and the temple that we'll deal with, begin to deal with next week, uh, and and starts to talk about what it means for him to come back. It's important to say he is standing here in front of everybody and making it clear, I am the Messiah. There are a, a bunch of Bible scholars. Uh, and, and, and more Christians, probably more on the liberal end of things, who would say that in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus doesn't claim to be the Messiah. I, I'm not exactly sure how you do that and read passages like this, where it is Jesus, the Son of God, says, Jerusalem, I, I just wanted to gather you like a, a hen gathers its chicks. And you're not going to see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He finishes this chapter by pointing forward to the moment where everything's going to make sense. This is the Christian hope. There is going to be a moment where there is going to be no more tears, where there's going to be no more wars. No more sickness because the creator of the universe is coming back. And it's so important for us to live on that basis that Jesus himself invited us to participate in a, in a regular ritual that the Apostle Paul says is a reminder of his death. We proclaim his death until he comes back. That it is a regular reminder for the price that Jesus had to pay so that life could come in the face of death, that light could come in the face of darkness. But it's a promise that the mess and pain and confusion we experience now is going to be resolved. And that's how Jesus ends this. How you think your story will end changes how you live today. None of us are perfect. We are going to get stuck in wrong beliefs. We are going to get full of ourselves. And I'm pretty sure part of the reason Jesus instituted communion was that we would have a regular reminder 
that he is the centre of the universe and we're not. Because don't we need that? Isn't it so easy just to fall into the trap of thinking it's all about me? Isn't it so easy to do that? We don't want to be all about me kind of people. We want to be all about Jesus kind of people. That's why we need communion. 